1: red eyes staring back at me. That they're going to show multiple gods
0: all over the earth, be able to speak in people's languages, and at that point, it's kind of converge into this one entity, which will be revealed as extraterrestrial. You'll realize that aliens are the gods of old, and at that point, it'll wipe religion out of the context of humanity. No, it couldn't have been a person, I know that.
1: from Episode 16, James Lady from Episode 8, Val Zalvala from Episodes 28 and 29, and John from Episode 2 and 3, in his first public appearance ever. Tickets are on sale now. Vendors' applications are available. And if you'd like to help sponsor this event, please contact me at contact.uncomfortable.com at gmail.com. Your donations would be appreciated. Tonight, i got a special guest for it. His name's Justin England. I don't know him either. But he reached out to me and actually is going to be a vendor at the Bigfoot and Brews event. We had a bit of a phone conversation the other day and he started to tell me about some pretty wild experiences he had over in Ohio. And I assume that since he is the co host of his own podcast called Cryptids of the Corn, that this probably will put him on the page as far as becoming a podcaster and talking about these kind of experiences. So, if you will. Please, welcome to the show, Justin England. Justin, welcome to Uncomfortable.
0: Hey, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here.
1: We're glad to have you here tonight, bud. So, like I said, you you reached out to me via email, I believe it was, about becoming a vendor for uh, the September event. And uh, I I was a little... I was a little surprised that in your, in your email, you, you specifically said, Hey, if you wanted ever wanted to hear about some experiences, I've had something go on. Yep. Well, we had a phone call and lo and behold, I pretty much had to put the brakes on you and tell you, don't, don't spoil anything <laughs> for me. I do like uh, the talk Because it, uh, it started to sound like this was something that very much needed to be recorded and, and played for my listeners. So. Justin, why don't you uh, why don't you start out and and tell you tell us just about your uh, your podcast, where people can find you, and uh, then let's get into the okay. things that inspired you to do that.
0: All right. Well, like you said, it's Cryptids of the Corn. Um, pretty much, we tackle a lot of like we do everything from one-off cryptids to like some bigger uh, sighting events, like flaps. In the Midwest, in Appalachia, because I am from Ohio. So, Ohio kind of gets that uh, a good mix of both. Um, we, do, we have done a couple interviews with local people, I know. Um, we do go out and do some Bigfoot stuff. Nothing much yet, but uh, that's kind of what the podcast I do with my co-host is about. We just kind of just have fun with it, you know. We talk about what we want to talk about. Like I think one of our first episodes was the Loveland Frogman. Because it's where my wife's from. Um you can find us on all the big podcatchers. catchers. Uh, I think we're on I think we're on all of them. But yeah, that's that part of it. But uh I guess what I've the years so how do I say this? I'm bad with this part. Uh so, so when I was growing up, we lived on a farm here in Hardin County. Ohio. anybody want to look on the map where that is it's northwest Ohio we're kind of smack dab between Lyman and Finley if that matters to anybody uh, anybody's familiar with this part of Ohio it's mainly corn it's, you know there's woods but not we're not a national forest area of Ohio you know when you think of like Hocking mm. Hills and stuff we're the exact opposite of the state we're flat and we're full of corn um, so my farm that we lived on we don't live there currently anymore we actually moved out uh, after these events, I'm going to tell you, pretty pretty soon. Not due to these events, but this was uh, 2011 and 2012. These things occurred in two summers. Uh, it always seemed to occur between May and, like, September, October is when it kind of ended. Um, our farm was about 10 acres of land and pasture. Uh, we had chicken coops, barns, you know, all that stuff. And we had about 15 acres of woods that we owned, but the woods we were connected to was probably about 90 acres. So it's one of the bigger ones in Hardin County. I think it's about tied with the second biggest woods. Um, Our driveway was a half mile long. So you couldn't see our house on the road, and you you couldn't see our neighbors or nothing like that. We were very secluded. Uh, On the farm, we had chickens, ducks, goats, horses, dogs, rabbits. Um, if it matters, I have three brothers and two sisters and plus my parents. So there was a lot of activity on our farm. We all kind of did our own stuff. Oh, our cousins moved in with us this year too, that year, the 2011. Oh, I guess one more thing is that, uh, this matters for later, but so we did, uh, like show horses. Uh, so we had kind of like, uh, stadium lights. That my dad had set up for me and my mom to work horses at night. I don't know if anybody at home knows, but uh, like it's a lot easier to work a horse at night uh, in the summer, so you don't overheat them. Uh, you can work a little longer and stuff. They're big animals; they get hot fast.
1: So you had you basically had a corral that you would work the horses yeah. in, but but you had it lit for yes for the night. Yeah, I mean uh, they I were never from. Heard about that. I'm sorry, I never heard of that. I mean, it makes total yeah. sense, but.
0: My dad actually got them from the uh, grain elevator in Alger. They were like replaced. They say they were real stadium lights. Like these are big lights. There was three telephone poles down there. My dad would, my dad does everything that my mom would ever ask of him.
1: Sounds like a Uh, good man. Yeah. He he knows how to keep the peace. Mm Hmm.
0: Yeah. Mom's not happy. No one's happy. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I also had a, I was I showed fancy poultry, so anybody home, it's chickens, but uh you know, some of these chickens were upwards of a hundred bucks a bird.
1: That's insane.
0: Yeah, uh, I've seen at a show I was at, I seen one go for seventeen thousand dollars, one chicken. That's a and, and whole thing.
1: And, You know, not not to get completely off the the topic, but yeah. what's what's the uh the appeal of, of a chicken like that? So I mean,
0: for fancies they're mostly bred for a feather quality. Uh, so high end materials, high end, everything from fashion to flies for fishing. That's where all okay. those different colors come from. He was bought for genetics. I want to make that clear. He wasn't bought for his individual value. He was bought for, uh, his potential offspring. Yeah. I'm going to start getting into it. If you're ready.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Let's go.
0: All right. So 2011, uh, so the first kind of stuff that started happening was stuff was getting moved around. And like I said, I have a lot of brothers and sisters, so we all kind of were blaming each other. And it was everything from small stuff to, like, buckets and, you know, to some larger things like rakes and wood and stuff like that. And I mean, like, um, like two-by-fours and stuff. Nothing like, not ch- firewood, which we did have.
1: Well, kind of clarify, what, what was going on with these things?
0: They would uh, end up across the farm or on the fence or in the barn when they weren't supposed to be in the barn. So we were kind of blaming each other. Like, we thought we were screwing with each other.
1: So all this stuff was getting moved around.
0: Yeah, and it was odd. It wasn't like no rhyme or reason. Nothing was ever getting taken. If that makes sense. Like we weren't missing stuff. It just was. Now it's the you know this pilot or these couple pieces of two by four are way over there now. Like okay. why are they over? Like the project we work on is over here. Um, like I said, we had a lot of animals. At one point, I, we probably had a uh, two hundred chickens, fifty goats. I think we had five horses at one point is the most we had at one given point. But, uh, so on a farm in Ohio, you're going to lose animals, especially chickens. So we did lose a couple that year, but it was nothing.
1: Now you're talking just uh, natural causes and and predators. Yeah.
0: They happens, you know, foxes and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and stuff was escalating for the moving of stuff more and more. Uh, so we really got the, the, the mindset that there was a person coming onto our property to mess with us. Okay. And like I told you yesterday, there was only, we only had two sets of neighbors. The one was straight across the woods. Uh, and he was my, he's my best friend still to this day. And he wouldn't do this stuff, you know, a joke's a joke, but you know, this was getting to be kind of really annoying Dis- at this point.
1: Disruptive. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then the other neighbors was an older couple. Uh, I believe they were, at this time, they were probably in their 70s. Uh, They were, you know, they didn't leave their house or nothing like that. So we were convinced that somebody was coming onto the property and just screwing with us. And we couldn't figure it out. We could never catch anybody. Uh, But, yeah. Oh, I guess one thing I did leave out at the beginning is the... uh, We were coon hunters. We hunted, you know, I'm not as big a hunter as my brothers. My brothers are real big hunters. But we never hunted our property at night, and we never talked about it. We never knew why. None of us. None of us were ever in our woods at night. We'd go to other places.
1: On your own property.
0: On our own property. And we'd go to other places just, like, down the road to hunt and stuff, and we'd, we'd never hunt our own at night. We'd go in our woods during the day, and, I'm, you know, my brothers are big deer hunters. Uh, my, my one brother has three big bucks of Ohio on an elk. So it was, it's just something that we never talked about in the time.
1: What about your dad?
0: Uh, dad would take us hunting. Dad wasn't, he hunts, but he's not worried. He was never worried about himself going hunting.
1: He would hunt your property or no,
0: he wouldn't hunt our property. No, he'd go wherever my brothers wanted to go. So it was just kind of a, I don't know if it was a subconscious thing but we never all none of us ever talked about it but we all kind of did the same thing. We'd all go to another property that we had permission for.
1: Okay, that's a little odd. You know, most people have a piece of property they're going to go go on their own property and
0: but uh hindsight's 2020 20, so after we knew why but during it just it was something that was so odd that we never talked about it. You know, we would uh, turkey hunt our woods, but we would never go out before daylight. And we, my brother would deer hunt it, but he'd never go out before daylight. And, you know, being a hunter, you know, you want to be out in your area, but way before daylight so you can sit there so nature forgets about you.
1: Yeah. Now, what Uh, about hunting into the evening?
0: No, we were always back. We weren't out in our woods that after night. We wouldn't really go past one of our barns after night. And we you know, it's just something we never talked about, but it just, I personally, I can speak to what I felt was just constant, uh, uneasiness. I, and we went past this one barn, you know, we didn't like it. I didn't like it. Hmm. And it's weird because we'd go to other places and I'd walk, you know, we'd walk all night through the woods by ourselves hunting, but it just, you know, it's something at the time it just was something we never talked about. It was just so odd. Yeah. But, uh, so like I said, my cousins moved in with us, uh, in the first kind of physical thing that happened. So my uncle, like I said, our driveway was super long. Uh, my uncle liked sports games, like uh, ball, I like, uh, sorry, baseball. Mm-hmm. None of my family cared for, cares for sports. We're just not that kind of people. So he'd go in his car and park down the driveway and listen to the game so he could listen to it in peace. And uh, so he'd, he'd pick a spot about halfway. There's kind of this driveway had a big bend. You still couldn't see nothing. You couldn't see the house or the road. So you were really out there. Well, one night he had somebody run up behind him and slap the trunk of his car and keep running. And he said he just he was like about of hell. We see him going flying down the driveway, and he called us, and he said he wasn't coming back for the night, and we didn't know what happened. Then uh, he he said he didn't ever see nobody, but he said it had to be a human. He just came up and slapped the back of his car, and he never stopped running. He feels differently now, what it was, but at the time we were all very convinced there was a guy that was screwing with us. Right. Yeah. But, But uh, why. no idea why it was, and we do live by a college town. Uh, ONU is the college we live by and we had some pranksters come out every once in a while. But like I said, we, not us personally, we were so far off the beaten path. You know, you'd be, if I was a college kid, I'd be scared to get shot.
1: Any chance there could have been like a homeless person that was, uh, squatting out there.
0: I'm gonna, uh, personally, I don't think so because we were through those woods during the day pretty often. I feel like we didn't Mm -hmm. notice that. And like my friend Nick was through it all way often during the day. Um, We're a very rural Ohio, uh, near cities, Lima. Not saying it's complete, nothing is ever completely impossible. Right. Um, But yeah, I don't don't think so. And we'll get to why. Okay. (laughs) But uh, oh, another thing that was happening is some of our feed bins were being left open and we were blaming each other. So we had this big feed storage. Uh, you know, we had horses, we had, you know, pigs, goats, all, you know, so this thing probably had about a 50 pound lid and it had four compartments for the different feeds and, uh, it would keep getting left open. And we each had our own animals and we had our own chores and stuff like that. So we never knew who it was. And we never paid attention, you know, how much feed was being missing because we had a lot of animals. We yeah. were going through feed, so that more was just than you, one more
1: than you should have been. Not, you were going through more than you should have been.
0: We were going through a lot of horse feed, which is high molasses. But we each of the horses only got a scoop a day, so that was one of the odder things that we were thought that we were double feeding or something like that, you know. Yeah, a horse is like a dog; they'll pretend they're starving to death. So those were some of the odd things that started. One of the big ones is the next thing for this year is Fourth uh, of July we're weekend. Still at,
1: we're still in 2011.
0: Still 2011. Okay. This is kind of, this. I don't know, this one kind of still gets to me. Uh, sorry. It's all right. So I worked at McDonald's at this time. Uh, I was a closer. This is Fourth of July weekend. I think it's July 3rd is when this happened. Uh, We had a camper at Indian Lake, which is about 30 minutes away from the house. So the rest of my family was already up there. Uh, I just told them I would, you know, it was already, I got off about 1130. So it was already too late for fireworks. I'm tired. I worked, you know, probably 10 hours. So I'm just going to, I just told my mom, I was just going to go home and go to bed and I'll come up in the morning. Uh, so I come home and I guess one thing I got to tell you before I start into this is we had three dogs at this time. We had, uh, Clarice, which is like a Yorkie poo. So she's maybe Mm -hmm. four pounds. Yeah. Bailey. He was a Beagle shepherd. He's maybe 40 pounds. And we had Sonny. He was a golden doodle and he was, uh, my brother has a muscular dystrophy. So he, Sonny was kind of trained to kind of stand. Sonny was about 135 pounds. And so he let Luke lean on him and stuff to kind of help him balance to do stuff. Uh, Sonny had actually almost bit a guy that was yelling at my mom one time. Sonny was very protective of us. He was a good dog. Uh, But he was not a small dog and he wasn't scared of, as far as I knew, he wasn't scared of nothing. Mm -hmm. And then one thing about our house is pretty much the entire kitchen and the entire living room is glass that looks out into the woods. Uh, so I come home. I go down the driveway. I open the door to let the dogs out because, you know, they probably hadn't been let out in, you know, six or seven hours since my family went up to the lake. And they wouldn't come into the kitchen. None of them. They stood in the hallway, the little, uh, like, the the hall, the call, the door frame. Mm-hmm. And enough, I, I'm like that, you know, at the time I was like, that's kind of odd, but I just like, they don't have to go to the, you know, they don't have to go to the bathroom. So then I start walking to the living room. Our house at that time is kind of shaped like a big U. So the kitchen and the living room were kind of side by side, but you had to walk through that, like a, a, the U of the house to get to the other one. Mm-hmm. So I start walking and these dogs will not leave me alone. And Clarice and Bailey, that makes sense. But Sonny, you know, he's 135 pounds and he's like, won't leave my side. So I lay on the couch, turn on the TV and Bailey and Clarice hop on me, which isn't normal. You know, like I said, they're basically lap dogs. And then Sonny tries to get up on me and I'm like, well, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> and he laid, then he's laid right beside me on the floor, on the couch, or right in front of the couch. If that, does that make sense? He's just right beside me. Sure. And then, uh, we start watching TV, and like I said, it's 4th of July weekend. Way off, clear on the other side of the woods, I hear kind of this low boom, boom, boom. It almost sounds like a hammer hitting something. And I'm just assuming it's uh, Nick's family uh, lighting off fireworks. Like, you know, it's late at night or whatever. About another 10 minutes pass, and then I hear boom, boom, boom. It's always three. It's, it sounds like it sounds like somebody's hitting something with a sledgehammer. Uh, just solid, you know. So about another ten minutes pass, and I hear boom, boom, boom. And now it's even closer. Like I said, this woods is huge, so it's not close to that, my house or anything yet, but it's getting closer. I can tell that. So then I pick up the phone, and I call Nick. And I was asking, because I assumed that's who was in the woods. I'd be the only other person that would even be in that woods. And he didn't like to go in at night. Yeah. Uh, I call him, he's in Pennsylvania with his family. So then I'm kind of, you know, at that point, I'm kind of getting freaked out a little bit. Uh, but I'm still not thinking too much of it because it's Fourth of July weekend. I don't know. It's like kids from down the road just screwing off with fireworks. That's what I keep going back to in my head is it's just fireworks, you know.
1: Right. Makes sense because it's 4th of July.
0: Yeah. If it would have been a weekend before a weekend after, uh, I would have been a little panicked faster, I think. But, um, and then again, boom, boom, boom. And it's always about 10 minutes apart, and then it's keeps getting closer. And then uh, in our yard, in the corner of our, where the pasture met, the woods, there's this big old dead tree, and I hear boom, boom, boom on that. And I still am getting goosebumps. It just, I'm sunk to my stomach. Sunny, it starts whimpering. The dogs are, like, forcing themselves on me. And it's freaking me out even more because these dogs are just terrified. Yeah. And I have, the gun cabinet is in the next room. And at this point, I'm too scared to get up to get a gun because I don't want whatever's out there to see me. Because like I said, this living room is all glass. So if I, the second I stand up, whatever is outside is going to see what, exactly where I am. Mm-hmm. And then boom, boom, boom on our big metal barn where our horses are. And you just hear the horses whinnying and freaking out and taking off in the pasture. And I am about in tears at this point. I'm so scared. And so the horse barn is probably 100 yards from the front door. Another five or six minutes pass, and the horses are still winning and freaking out. You can hear them uh, running circles out in the other end of the pasture because they don't know what to do. Uh, Because they obviously they don't want to go back to the barn.
1: I assume I assume those uh, stadium lights are not on,
0: correct? No, no, they were not on. Uh, And then one more. I hear boom boom, boom, on this project car that my brother had, a Porsche. It's 30 feet from the door. It's 30 feet from our front door. And it sounded, I mean, it sounded almost, it's hard to explain, like a gun going off, boom, boom, boom. And I am basically, you know, I'm in tears. I'm so scared. I'm so scared to move. I don't want to do nothing. The dogs are, you know, trying to Sonny is whimpering and the other dogs are basically on my face. And then all of a sudden my aunt and uncle come flying down the driveway blaring music. They had a convertible. So they're blaring music, whatever this thing is, just takes off. I come flying out of the house. The second I see headlights and I'm crying. And at this time I'm 16 years old. So I'm not no tough kid, but I'm not a little kid. You know, I was working Mm -hmm. and stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, So my aunt and uncle see how freaked out I am. They, you know, we get in the car and we leave. We don't, you know, we're not there that night. We go to stay at my grandma and grandpa's, which is in town. Uh, the next day, uh, my, you know, my dad comes home. Everybody can tell I'm, I'm just so freaked out. Uh, we get a hold of a law enforcement official. I won't name him because this is like a, this is a really small town. We get him out there off duty. My dad didn't want to. A police report. Uh, my dad was still at this time thinking it was a guy, and my dad was getting fed up, and he was going to handle it himself, kind of deal. So he didn't want no police report, but he still wanted this law enforcement officer to come out. So on the barn, we find uh, about nine foot off the ground this big indent where something. What what the I don't want to say what he was this law enforcement officer said it looks like somebody hit the barn with a sledgehammer about nine mm-hmm. foot off the ground. And it did. I don't have the phone with the pictures anymore. I think maybe I can maybe get my dad's. But, and then we go to the Porsche and it's the same thing right on the back side of the Porsche. And then he, the law enforcement officer is convinced that somebody was just beating on everything with a sledgehammer. But on the barn, it's seriously probably nine foot off the ground. So he's, he's, you know, this officer trying to really encourage my dad to file a report so they can do stuff. My dad didn't want nothing to do with that. You know, we just, we are very private people. You know, we want to just take care of everything ourselves kind of deal.
1: This is probably a little, a little detail that uh, I'm going to ask if you noticed, um, you know, if, if you were to hit, if you were to hit anything with a sledgehammer uh especially a painted surface like you know say the Porsche
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you would see flaking uh, flaking you would see uh scratching um you know uh, uh, something would have embellished on the uh on the paint and even even on the tin of the um the horse barn if you were, hit it- was there was there any indication of that or was it more like it was hit with something that would have been uh, um very strong, but a little bit malleable, you know, so, like a, a large, a large fist or.
0: Yeah. To me, it always looked like knuckles. Cause if you hit a tin with a sledgehammer, you're going to go through it. Yeah. Like you said with the Porsche, you're going to flake. So the Porsche didn't have any paint flaked. It only had dents. Uh, the barn didn't have, it wasn't, you know, it was just dense. It really, to me, uh, you. So, like I said, it only ever hit three times in a row, uh-huh. but on the barn you could see four dents. Oh. So I always, in my brain, later on, like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it looked like knuckles.
1: So you could see individual indents.
0: Yeah. from And that's what we. That's what they thought was the individual hammer strikes. But it only ever did it three times, and there was four dents.
1: So it was hitting the same spot.
0: Basically, yeah.
1: But it left four dents.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you have a Do you have an approximation as far as uh, suppose they were knuckles, uh, a, a, a length, a distance that you could? Yeah. You know, so six or six inches, seven inches.
0: Yeah, I was sixteen, so I don't. You know, it's been a long time, but
1: right. Yeah, I understand
0: I'm going to say it was easily double my my fist so it may have been seven or eight you know maybe even nine inches all crossed yeah it was it was quite it was It was big uh but my uncle was the one that was you know picked took me home my uncle knew had other stuff happen to him and he never told us because he didn't want to freak us out and we we didn't talk to each other till after everything and we really didn't well I we really didn't talk to each other about stuff like this kind of, you know, everything that kind of happened, we just kind of buried. Yeah. And he
1: I th- had, a, he had experiences on that same property yeah. that he lived on. Okay.
0: Yeah. And, uh, no, but I think it just, everybody didn't want to freak out everybody else. But, uh, that year, the rest of that year, a, a bunch of the same small stuff kept happening, but, nothing major again happened.
1: Now in our phone call yesterday, you, you were indicating that you, you guys were finding um, like large objects being stacked.
0: Yeah. So that's next year. Oh, okay. Sorry.
1: Nope. Once, I don't want to get ahead of us.
0: Once I, uh, after we talked, I put stuff back in order and my, you know, okay. But, um, but yeah, so then it stuff continued small stuff, you know, the small stuff being moved, Uh, The feed, you know, that kind of stuff. And like I said, that year we didn't really lose any livestock that we couldn't account for other predators. Uh, Like we talked about yesterday, if a coyote or a raccoon or a mink kills a chicken, there's going to be a mess. Or a fox. You're going to at least find feathers. Uh, Coyotes and raccoons are the messiest killers. There'll be a big mess. Uh, A fox... Is a lot better than a coyote with being clean, but you're still going to see feathers. Um, but uh, so we didn't have, so we basically I can account every bird or small animal we lost for natural predation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was always a mess. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, mink have a nasty habit of pulling heads through fences. <laughs> they do what? So mink, when they kill a, a chicken or a, Duck, they'll actually pull the head to the fence like they're trying to drag it back. Oh. Because they can pull holes. Huh. It's just something weird, but it happens. You talk to anybody that has chickens, has had a mink, you'll know. And you can always tell them because you'll have like four or five chickens with their heads to the fence. Huh. But, but yeah, so that's pretty much 2011. That's kind of the stuff. Like the booms were the highlight. You know? I, I don't think highlights. It's
1: like the right word. Yeah. I'm interested. Um, you know, like you say, you guys didn't talk a whole, a whole lot about any of this stuff. I got to assume at 16 years old, uh, once mom and dad came back from uh, the 4th of July uh, events, you know, half hour away, um, you obviously you must have had a conversation about what went yeah, on. So- what, what was your parents reaction to your experience.
0: My dad was very concerned. Uh, I love my dad. My dad's a very good dad. But uh, he was still, at this point, 100% convinced this is a man. So he's, at this point, uh, trying to catch this man. He's put up cameras. He's been, hike kind of hanging out at night sometimes. Uh, so my dad, I think my dad didn't want anybody to really talk about it because he didn't want to freak out. I had littler siblings. You know, my youngest siblings at this time were, like, 10 So he, I think that's kind of at the beginning, why we didn't talk about it a whole lot or at all is because we were really worried about freaking out. Well, even my cousin, my little cousin was eight. And, you know, I think that was kind of my dad, you know, when I told him, he always believed me, he always took me very seriously, but in his head, he already knew it was a guy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, so till 2012, you know, nobody really thought anything other than a guy. It just was all you know weird. It was just so weird. And like I said, at this point, nothing is being taken. You know, if it was people coming to get scrap metal, you know, stuff would be gone, not just moved. Right. Um, uh,
1: yeah, and why would somebody? Why would somebody come out of your property just to straighten up and and move things and put them in, a, mm-hmm. in different places? <laughs> And it was always just the oddest stuff, like buckets,
0: like buckets being moved. Uh, I don't know if you know, like a horse feed bucket. They're like really thick rubber. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of those, and they'd get moved around. Like they'd be sitting on the edge of the pasture or something. Like why would why were you walking a bucket of water out there? There's not water in it, but it's just like why'd you have a bucket out there? Yeah. And we were, you know, also the farm was very active. Like I said, I had a lot of siblings, and my cousins were on the property. So, at the first year, it was a lot of people. Just we were just accusing each other a lot at the beginning. You know, just because you have siblings, that's what you do. Yeah. But uh, yeah, So that's pretty much the first year. But uh, my parents always took everything very seriously, uh, always, and it was always. And um, you can ask my dad. I never. He'll probably be at the conference, but yeah, it was always assumed it was a guy, and that's what I keep going back to. But it was just always—that's always what everybody thought. It was just some human messing with us. Yeah.
1: So at this point, 2011, uh, late fall is coming around, and and Bigfoot, Sasquatch is not a thought in your guy's mind at all. As far as not what, at this what, time, what's causing?
0: Yeah, not this time. We were all you know, even me and I was, I was curious, but I never, we never thought we had this thing on our property. It was always a guy or a group of guys or something. Uh, but yeah, but that was pretty much 2011
1: moving forward into 2012. You, you stated at the beginning that, you know, things started, um, pretty much around springtime and went through late fall Yeah, uh, during 2011. It,
0: so it was pretty much May to like October. And then whatever was happening stops really. I mean, we never noticed anything odd in the winters right. or spring, like early spring. Mm-hmm. And like we never found any tracks of nothing or nobody. Uh, we didn't have, we didn't have any of the the weirdness in the winter. Okay.
1: So, so I assume uh, we May, just
0: assumed it was just, I'm sorry.
1: No, I, I was just going to say, so I assume May of uh, 2012 rolls around. Yeah, late
0: May, stuff starts starts back up, people. Uh, it was the feed bin first. And, well, this is kind of the year, I think, whatever, well, we know what it was now, but this entity, how do I got ballsy. Okay. It had a one year of easy pickings. And now, you know, it wanted, uh, it was pushing limits because like it, the feed bin was getting hit more that, like I said, that lids very heavy. Um, and then kind of, I think what prompted everything was my expensive chickens were in a pretty fortified coop. they basically were in a log cabin. My dad had built, uh, in the fence for the run, so raccoons and foxes, will act, or raccoons, foxes, and coyotes will actually kind of work a hole in that fencing, and they can still get in. Uh, so my dad electrified the fencing. He hooked it up to our horse pasture fence. And so you'll get, you know, it's not, I mean, you can touch it. It's going to hurt, but it's nothing. It's You know, it's a very uh, low amp, high right. voltage kind of shock. Right. It hurts, but it don't do nothing, really. Uh, but there was a, a nest box on the side of this thing. You could pick up this really heavy door to get in pick up eggs and stuff like that. So I started having expensive chickens come up missing. So then that kind of gets, you know, to be an issue. Like we talked about, you know, some of these chickens are upwards of a hundred dollars a bird. Yeah. So now when three of them go missing, that's not little money. Right. Uh, oh, and then. So we had that and then we had large stuff being moved and this is what you kind of said, you know, uh, stuff like car hoods. Uh, we had railroad ties. Um, I don't know you, you've seen railroad ties having you? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody at home, they're about 12 foot long. Uh, you know, they're, uh, I think they're eight by eight. Eight, by eight Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're not, you know, it's two people carrying this thing, Sure. you know, if you want to move them, uh, car hood. We literally had a car hood get moved around. Uh, and they kind of end up in weird piles in, in the corners of stuff. And so now this is kind of when stuff was getting, when we were feeling weirder because it's like, no, you know, my brother didn't drag a car hood across the yard to stick it up. That's not a prank. That's not, you know, that's a lot of work for nothing.
1: Right. Let me ask you a question real quick. Yes. Um, so these railroad ties, uh, many mm-hmm. times, uh, many times you'll find that they're, and I'm not exactly sure what the process is, but it's almost like they have a tar substance yep. on it. Um, was. <laughs> I, I don't know if you would have been cognizant of at the time to, to be looking whether or not there was um, any kind of hair or anything that was stuck to the...
0: No, we weren't looking for anything like that. I mean, there could have been. Mm-hmm. But we'd have never known. We, you know, I, even at this point, my, my dad was. We really were dealing with a person, and, and it's just kind of getting to be a, you know, to be a point where my dad was going to, my dad was going to shoot this guy.
1: Yeah. Hey, real quick. Like going, my dad was looking. Hold on to that thought. Going back to that that feed bin, um, when you guys mm-hmm. would, when you guys would get to that feed bin, you'd find that the lid had been left open. Correct. Yeah. Did you, did you notice uh, on the ground around it, was there uh, was there an exorbitant amount of feed that had been like, you know, cast down onto the ground? Uh, Uh,
0: so kind of, but I have, I had, like I said, I had younger siblings and they'd spill feed a lot too when they had to feed their animals. Yeah. So we all had our own pro like 4H projects and you take care of your own projects. You know, that's kind of the point. Uh, so my younger siblings would spill stuff. So it would be hard to tell if there was more right. than yeah, that. Yeah. But, yeah, there was always kind of some feed on the ground in front. Okay. Um, but, yeah, the one, I don't know if you've ever seen horse feed, it's basically just sugar. It's just molasses. And Is it really? Alfalfa. Yeah.
1: I had no idea. Uh, I assumed I it would be some kind of a grain or something.
0: It's got a little bit of grain in it, but it's mostly molasses. And that's why each, uh, you know, uh, a 1,000-pound horse only gets a pound of it a day because it can basically be candy. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've tasted it before. It it's, tastes like, you know, brown molasses. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sticky to the touch. But, uh, so yeah, expensive chickens, the feed bin, large things. So we got a, a you know what a red healer is, or what the dog?
1: I've heard of a blue healer. I did not know. The red
0: lot. healer is the same thing, but red. Okay. That makes the sense. spots that are blue on a blue healer are red. Uh, we got it from the Amish as a farm dog. Uh, these things are monsters to anything. That's not what it's supposed to be on the farm. Uh, Cause like I said, we have an expensive chickens go missing. So we bought Lucy. What's her name? And she was a good job dog for her job. Uh, she, you know, she was friendly to people, but, uh, she killed, uh, you know, probably a dozen raccoons. She'd even killed two coyotes. The one time she came up all bloody and she had two cuts on her and we couldn't figure out why she was so bloody. And then we found a dead coyote. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So this this dog was not, this is a, this dog was not scared of anything. So, uh, healers are herding dogs. So at night, everything would be back either. in it's coop or in the barn. Uh, we had one horse named spirit and they, you know, they'd kind of fight back and forth and spirit always ended up back on the barn. <laughs> um, but yeah. And so, now
1: is that just a natural instinct for that dog or is that yeah, some sort of training that you have to put the dog through?
0: I know we bought her like that. I, uh, this kind of, the Amish didn't really do nothing with her, but that's what they, they just naturally do. I think she picked up from her mom. Uh, but that's the whole, that's why we bought her is because she'd walk right by a chicken and not kill a chicken. But if she'd seen a raccoon, you know, it was, it was going to be, it was going to be dead. Yeah. Um, but she would also have this nasty habit of treating things. And then she'd bark all night until she'd lose her voice. If you didn't go knock it down. So, Oh, one more thing before I move on with this next part. Uh, we had four-wheeler and horse trails through the woods. So we had these big openings in the woods that were just kind of at night. They look like voids because there's nothing there. There's no trees or nothing. Mm-hmm. The canopy is still above them, way up from the other trees. But you'd have these holes because, uh, like, I said, me and my mom rode horseback. Uh, my brothers all had four-wheelers. So we had these big, long trails we'd go through during the day. So... This night Lucy had treed something right on the edge and most of the time we wouldn't go out and bug with it if it was not on the on the farm itself. Uh but this is right on the edge, right by one of those big lights. So we the lights were on that night. Uh so maybe a hundred and fifty yards from the front door. Uh so me and my brother my I, I just the brother that's right below me in age. Uh, we grab a golf club and a baseball bat. We were 100% sure she had a friggin' possum treat. And she had been probably barking at this thing for 10 minutes. And we start walking down. Uh, and we kind of think it's weird because she's standing right in front of... Of the four-wheeler trail. There's no trees there, so we don't know why she's... So she's standing in the yard in front of one of these, these basically these black holes. So standing, for the trail. Right,
1: at the, standing right at the threshold of this yeah. this trail.
0: Lucy was in the light, and then it was two foot in front of her, pitch black. And we start, you know, we're still coming to her, and then we get about 30 feet away, and me and my brother both freeze. We both see it at the same time. These giant... Green eyes are just looking down at Lucy, and we measured the next. Day. It's about eight foot off the ground, and there was about three inches between these eyes. So just massive, and these eyes were huge, and we can see the outline of this thing. It is just hulking. Uh, kind of, okay. it's hard to describe, but like.
1: What, what, time, you know, no, what time was this? What, what were the light conditions, I guess?
0: Oh, oh, it was probably about midnight. Okay. So it's pitch black once you get out of the light. Uh, and it's just looking at Lucy. It's not moving. It's almost, it's like it's fake. It's just no, zero movement. And it's just staring down at Lucy. And me and Luke are frozen. I mean, completely frozen. And then we see it blink real slow once, and it's still looking at Lucy. And then it blinked real slow again, and it was staring right at me and Luke. And I told Luke, don't run, is all I said. And we start walking up backwards, and this thing is just staring us down. And we start walking backwards. And by the time we get about 10 feet back, we just take off running, and we're crying. We come busting in the door, and Lucy's still down there barking. And, you know, we go to my dad, We're you know, we're basically in tears. We are in tears. I am crying. Yeah. Uh, and my dad was just done. He gets the big shotgun, the 12-gauge shotgun. He loads it up. And he walks right down to where Lucy's standing. And he's just screaming the top of his lungs. He's like, you, the thing's not in eyesight when he gets there. Okay. My dad at this point is 100% convinced this is the guy, you know, he's got him. He knows he's out here. Uh, he's like, you mother effer, this is it. You know, you tortured my kids. This is, you know, I'm going to count to five or I'm going to start shooting into the woods. And then he starts counting. Nobody comes out. Nothing happens. Then he gets, you know, zero. And then he just shoots into the top of the trees, the canopy. And uh, so me and Luke are on the patio listening to the whole thing about 150 yards away. And he shoots in the top of this tree and it all hell breaks loose. It sounds like a buffalo is just ripping through the woods. Whatever this thing was was just like ten feet back. It wasn't it just backed up a little bit. It didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And my dad just starts kind of walking backwards, stumbling, he's freaking out, you know, he comes right but he comes basically running back up to the house. And you can just for about a minute, you can just hear just hell breaking loose through the woods and you know it just was gone it ran to the other side of the woods and I remember we went inside we kind of tried to ask dad what happened like what he thought it was and he didn't want to talk about it and we just kind of oh, it was so horrifying he wouldn't tell my mom because he, he, he was so worried about freaking everybody else out because he didn't have an answer
1: from, you know? from the outward appearance how did your how did your dad look when he came back in.
0: Oh, he was um, white as a ghost. He, just, My dad rarely doesn't know what to do, and this is one of those times in my life. He just just didn't know what to do. Yeah. And we all, I remember none of us slept a wink that night. Uh, but that's kind of the, it was kind of the end of activity. Really? Nothing was being moved, nothing, uh, no, you know, the feed bin wouldn't be lifted no more. What, you know, it just was kind of the end. It was the, it was just, I still get goosebumps talking about it. There's the immense size. I mean, I'm like a 130 pound, 17 year old. And I'm 30 foot away from this immense thing. I mean, we could see the outline of it. It just, it just was so big. But the, uh, the next day we go out and my adopted brother, he's very, very tall. And he stood up or he raised his hand up to about where we me and Luke, thought the eyes were. And it was like eight foot one inch or something like that. And there's, like I said, there's no trees, So it wasn't the raccoon sit in a tree, you know, with eyes, there's no branches anywhere near that. Right it was just, that was, we didn't talk about it for years. And, uh, you know, hindsight, you know, obviously it was a Sasquatch. It was a Bigfoot. And I, it just, yeah. So Sorry. I'm.
1: Uh, no, you're fine. Um, you know, so you, you indicated that it appeared to be, you know, approximately three inches, uh, between the eyes. The mm-hmm. eyes were very large. Um, it was great that you went back out there with your your uh, your brother and and mm-hmm. kind of got a gauge on on the height of the eyes. What do you guess the breadth of of the shoulders? Since you were able to see the outline of this thing, was it blacker than blacker than the night? Ambient. No, light? it
0: wasn't. It wasn't like like it wasn't pitch black. It was hard to see because it was behind like the edge of the light from the horse pasture lights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get that effect of almost almost being like behind glass. But uh, we could see, I mean, I bet you it was, I don't want, you know, I was, I, I was a kid, you know, it terrified me. I don't, I bet you it was three and a half feet wide or wider. It was just so immense at the shoulders. It just was, you know. And I think what really bugged us more than anything was just the stillness it was it was like it was a statue but the eye you know obviously the head moved with the eyes when it raised up but it was i mean it it was just monstrous i mean to us now knowing what i know now i know they they get a lot bigger yeah and i'm good i don't need to see another one
1: (laughs) What about footprints? I, I, you know, you said you heard it uh, just barreling through the woods after your dad had uh, let loose with the we shotgun. Found, we didn't find
0: any footprints. We weren't really looking for them, I remember, at the time, but we found all kinds of trees broke. I mean, we found, you could see for about 30 yards it just a hole in the woods from this thing just taking off. Whatever, I mean, nothing big. It never took out nothing, you know, more than a couple of inches, but uh, it was snapping. I mean, it was just destroying everything in front of it to get out. And I really think it didn't realize where dad shot. I think it really, I think it really thought dad shot at it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I have my own theories about what, why, you know, what happened, but yeah. So that one, well, me and Luke seen it and then dad heard it. And my brother, Luke, he'll, he's really, really reluctant to still talk about it. It's still, he's about the toughest person I know. And, he won't, you know, my dad will talk about it a bit. Yeah. My dad will talk about it, but Luke just won't.
1: So before you get into, uh, what your theories on, Mm -hmm. on on what and why, um, kind of go into some of the conversations you had with your dad about it.
0: So we, after that night, uh, we kind of, me and Luke asked dad maybe a couple questions and he really would have given us nothing. Nobody talked about it for years. And then
1: I started getting into this stuff. As far as as far as looking into the stuff.
0: Okay. You know, yeah, you know, I, I always loved like the Loch Ness monster. That was my thing. Mm-hmm. I never really thought nothing about Bigfoot. I was still at that time didn't think it was really Bigfoot because we were very much Bigfoot was. I mean, I really it's hard to explain. I really thought Bigfoot was like a fairy tale, even though I believed in the Loch Ness monster. It's just yeah. how my brain worked. And then eventually, you know, I started getting into the stuff, and after. I started putting everything together, you know, my uncle already knew what it was. And then we started getting story, you know, we started finally opening up about it and it's like, yeah, we, we had a bigfoot. I think my dad always kind of knew, but we still lived there for another like year and a half. So for sure he wasn't going to tell us there was a bigfoot on the property.
1: Now you're, you said your uncle had had experiences. I assume that's your, your dad's brother. My mom's,
0: your mom. brother-in-law. Okay. So he was the one that had the the car slap.
1: Oh, listening to the yeah sports broadcast.
0: Yeah, and he yeah, and he heard stuff. Uh, he did that a couple times before the car slap, and he'd have what he would call like r- run bys You know, s- something sizable would just take off beside of him. He right. would never see it. You know, you could hear it and feel it. But uh you know, he's not a, a very. Uh, Outdoors guy, mm-hmm. he was, or you know, he's a lawyer or that kind of stuff. So he always just assumed it was a deer, Did not knowing nothing about him. But uh then afterwards, you know, we, but it was probably, I want to say, it was probably five years before we talked about it. Like yeah. we, and then finally, my, you know, I talked to my dad and he he knows it was a Bigfoot and Luke, I've gotten a couple times, and he knows it was one. But it's like, there's nothing you can do about it. I think that's why my dad really wanted to not talk about it when we were there. Because that took it from a human to something, you know, that's on the realm of fairy tale to us at the time. Monster. A monster. And so what are you going to do about a monster? There's nothing.
1: Right. Did your dad ever did your dad ever go into um you said he he knew ahead of time he knew during this process that what you were dealing with was a bigfoot did he ever go into any other accounts or anything that he had run into that-
0: uh, he so i don't think he knew it was a bigfoot until really that last thing he i i fully believe the whole time he believed it was a guy oh okay and uh but that one it to the woods like that that was this, the instant he knew it, it was no longer a human uh but he, as when he grew up so we, we it's called the muck we live right beside the black swamp and that's where he grew up on uh so people call it the muck but they had weird stuff my grandpa he told me a story my grandpa bob would get followed through the woods in this one woods and grandpa bob always just told dad you just keep walking You don't, you know, dad never questioned it. Um, and just nothing really besides some, you know, little odds and ends, nothing you could point at and be like, that was Sasquatch.
1: So you're 17 and Mm -hmm. I assume you, you go off to college Yep. and you become a,
0: so basically I became a fishery biologist. Uh, my actual title was a, like a, a, fisheries research technician. So I was the guy in the field that did that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I worked everything from hatcheries. I did a lot of DNA collection. Uh, I done a lot of endangered species surveys and stuff like that. Uh, mostly fish and amphibians is what I specialized in, but I did do some mammal stuff. But uh, the more I did that, the more I realized that how likely these things are out there. I mean, I knew they were out there, but that how little people realize you know, it takes for a species to hide even something large. I mean, most of the stuff I was looking for was small, but and then we started listening and then finally we started talking about it. But, uh, my mom always kind of knew after that my mom, you know, nobody, I guess nobody really want to talk about it cause all my siblings were so young. Yeah. Uh, I had really young siblings and really young cousins, but yeah, that's, I mean that's pretty much what happened. Well, you know,
1: a, a terrifying experience. I think at at whatever age, whether you know, mm-hmm. at, your, at your dad's age, at your age, at seventeen. Yeah, you know, for somebody to for somebody to say that you are a liar because of what you told somebody you saw, um, that's that's a pretty unfair thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. But when you're faced with seeing something as massive as it as it was, mm-hmm. and the eyes apparently um, doing what so many reports say, basically like a um, almost a self illumination of of some sort. where do you where do you go with that you know you you go off to college and and you know with being a um a wildlife biologist you are are a science-based mind mm-hmm. and you're learning the uh the protocols for for science and science has told us time and time again that you know the proof is in the pudding there there is no science to what if right so what is? How do you how do you rectify that that science based thought that you had to go through I, to do what you to do what you end up doing as a job versus what you saw and were convinced that you saw, but what you saw in anybody else's mind is is a myth or a, or folk folklore. Mm-hmm. How do you put the, how do you rectify so, that? How do you put those together?
0: I guess for me, the more research I did, I mean, the more evident that everything was there, and I did, like I said, I did endangered species surveys. I was looking for animals that we knew were there and were incredibly rare, uh, and how easily something can hide. And then the behaviors that the thing exhibited, Mm -hmm. I mean, made biological sense.
1: Be, Be a little more specific, like the things that you're talking about that they exhibited.
0: So, uh, like, I think what we had—I guess it goes into like theories because nobody's like—I like I told you, nobody's a Sasquatch expert, in my opinion, because there's just you know there's so little known about them. But my—and
1: if they say if they say they are, you should run.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm a Sasquatch enthusiast with my own ideas and opinions, and that does not belittle anybody else's ideas and opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that—that's kind of how I put it. But um, the behaviors seemed, uh, hindsight, they seemed almost playful, uh, almost testing the limits, like a, uh, a young human or a young, uh, some, you know, some of the other higher primates. Because that's what most people kind of, I feel, you know, that's where most people put the Sasquatch is either some kind of primate or some kind of somebody on the human branch. Um, like the moving stuff around, you see that a lot in gorillas and stuff like that. Um, but it was smarter than that, obviously, because it never got caught. Uh, the food, it knew exactly where the food was. It obviously was watching us open stuff. Um, and I mean that grain is just nothing but sugar. That's a good meal if you're that big. Um, High in calories. Yeah, I mean it's just yeah, it's just. If you're fighting for food, that's a that's a heck of a resource right there. Um, and it obviously learned our schedules because our farm was pretty hectic with how many people we had. Mm. So to not get seen was impressive. Uh, it never I think the only the only livestock it ever took was chickens and ducks, as far as I could tell. We never lost like a, a baby goat. We had baby goats it could have grabbed. Uh, In my opinion, I think it knew that there was a, as far as it knew that people kind of like their mammals a little more than they like their birds.
1: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Like, uh, and then I think that second year is this individual, uh, I think it was only, I think this time it was only, or this, these two years, it was only one individual doing this. I don't think it was a family unit or a couple of them
1: i yeah, was I was gonna, uh, I was gonna uh, ask you about that if you felt it was just uh one specific individual and I, you know, I think I mean,
0: it was always one specific individual uh I feel this is the year it got braver uh it was getting into the feed more often you know it was starting to take chickens
1: and i think um, I think that's a good point uh to to interject this is you know with the idea of a a rogue bigfoot you know one that's one that's alone isolated. Mm-hmm. on its own, uh without the uh support of a, a tribe or a family group. Um, you know, it it makes sense that from from a, a litany of other reports when you hear about uh, people who have actually witnessed these things um hunting together, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're working in tandem with other uh other subjects to to get their get their food. And if this is a rogue and it's alone and it doesn't have the, uh, the support of another adult or any, you know, family individuals. Yeah. It would make, it would make more sense that they would uh, switch over to the more opportunistic ability easy to calories. Yeah. Without having yeah. to put out the expense of uh, energy to, to do hunting uh, per se. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that's what was going on. Is it, was and then I think the first year it was pretty much a grain. I don't as far as I know it never really did anything with the, the poultry. Uh because like I said most of the animals we had missing, you know, there was evidence. When that second year there wasn't. Um I you know, it was and then like the moving of bigger stuff. It was just to me it really seemed like a uh, a young teenager pushing the limits of what he can get away with and even maybe challenging the, uh, the status quo, you know, moving, I mean, car hoods are not small. Right. And uh, you know, the grain, the chickens. And then I think uh, when it let us get that close to it, that one time, you know, we were kids, it wasn't scared of us, you know, it knew what we were. And then when dad came out, it didn't, it didn't take off and it just backed up I, I mean, it probably only backed up 10 feet. You know, it wasn't gone. It just stepped out of like with the edge of the light. And, uh, when dad shot at it, well, he didn't shoot at it. You know, he shot in the, the canopy of the trees, but as far as he, you know, as far as he knew, he shot at it. Yeah. Uh, I think that might've been that uh, individual's realization that mom and dad may be right and people may not be good. Uh, Cause that was like, literally it was like a light switch. Everything stopped. No more activity. And I'm assuming, well, I'm assuming he started doing whatever his parents were originally doing or his group was originally doing. Uh, our part of Ohio If you kind of look at a lot of the sightings we have, we don't have a lot, a lot of sightings, but they seem to kind of be a uh, late spring, early fall kind of pass through. Mm -hmm. And that's a short-term migration. So they may be moving just through little parts of Ohio. But our specific region, uh, it was a, uh, you know, just passing through kind of deal. And it seemed to be before and after hunting seasons because we didn't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of tree cover. So it's harder to move in the woods when there's people out there. When there's not a lot of woods,
1: so there's not. You're you're saying there's not typically a lot of underbrush,
0: right? Our woods are pretty clean. Okay. Um, uh, when you go down to like Wayne National or Hawking or Salt Fork, you know you got a lot of other stuff. Uh, Our part of Ohio has been basically plowed for the last 200 years. Yeah. So we have a you know we have some old growth. but we don't have a lot of, you know, that young intermediate growth much. But uh, I think that uh, the group we had, I think we maybe had a family group in the area that would pass through kind of seasonally, but not due to weather. Just kind of, that's just when they move through. Mm -hmm. And I think junior is what we kind of, I kind of started calling them. Thought that it was a, you know, this, this woods is big enough. It's got food. It's got, you know, we had two creek, We had two big creeks in the woods, so he had water all the time, and he had plenty of food, apparently. And I think that's why it just kind of set up shop. Um, I don't know why it stopped in the winter. I don't know where he went. I don't know if he still is in there. We never seen sign, so Do, I don't know you, that. Are
1: quite. you aware? Is is there any uh, any amount of of known? Uh, Cave systems or, or caverns uh, in in that so, area of Ohio.
0: No, not really. There's nothing up here. Like, um, so we were basically a big wetland. Okay, our part of Ohio specifically. Uh, the Mammoth Cave system doesn't get very close to here. It goes kind of around us in a big U. Uh, we're basically where the big the big chunk of glacier parked and made a wetland. Okay, that's why we're so flat. Uh, so we don't have that much of access to that kind of stuff. Like when you go down to, like I keep going, I go down to hawking an awful lot, but uh, there's caves everywhere. There's mine shafts, you know, people follow them all the time, unmarked ones. Uh, Our part of Ohio, it's a lot harder to hide in the winter, I would assume, because there's no leaf cover, and our woods aren't very big. So if somebody's in that woods with you, it's awful harder to hide, because everything's flat,
1: so from where not you're saying I, from where you're at to to the cave systems and stuff that you're talking about that people have fallen in and and all that how uh how, by mileage how how far away is that from you
0: Oh about 80 miles 90 miles So if you're a large mammal not very far
1: Yeah that that does fall into what seems to be uh, uh some quite quite prevalent as far as people's beliefs that you know, these things have, a uh, about a hundred mile radius of, uh, of travel.
0: I mean, as far as mammal goes, that's even, that could be even kind of small. So when you, like when people say the word migration, you think of giant long-term migrations, like birds or like the mastodons used to do, mm-hmm. or mammoths used to do, you know, there's all kinds of types of migration and they're not all weather-based, uh, but we were talking about like Bobcats, you know, uh, when the juveniles get pushed out, uh, the female juveniles will pretty much set up shop uh, right next to mom's territory. I believe Bobcats have something like, I believe it's like 50 to a hundred square miles and that's not, you know, a diameter That's a you know, so it's not as, you know, it's not huge, but mm-hmm. the uh, juvenile males will go up to 300 miles away in the first year. So you can have big pushes and that's a kind of a uh, genetic preset that prevent inbreeding in the population. Oh, interesting! You know, it's okay if females stay around, but it's you know they push the males out to kind of get genetics to mix. Right. Uh, that's probably not a conscious choice. That's just something that's inherent in them. Uh, we see that in a lot of we see that in a lot of mammals. You know, males get get pushed out. Like you know, that's why a lot of mammals have what they call like rogue males or bachelor groups. Because you know, boys aren't you know boys aren't allowed to stay around the, the family group because normally there's a big old alpha.
1: Yeah. So this but, yeah. this this area that you had you guys you guys had your experiences on. Um, mm-hmm. Now you said there wasn't a whole lot of undergrowth and that your woods was pretty clean. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask this question because I'm kind of taken back to uh, just on your based on your idea of uh, uh, migration. Uh, a gentleman I spoke with, uh, who who does some research in uh, New Jersey, um, Mike Fomelant of uh, Shadow of the Big Red Eye, um, mm-hmm. he indicated that he thought one of his theories were that the the family groups that they had uh, were sure were in existence in in northern New Jersey moved through that area. Based on the um, based on the production of berries in in specific yeah. uh, um, plants, do you have do you have that kind of resource in that area? Is that something that would have been a an additional food Still, source and and possibly yeah. moved out after that was gone?
0: Yeah, uh, we do have a lot of like mulberries, uh, blackberries, and stuff like that. Not tons and tons. But it's mainly agriculture. Uh, so if you're eating, let's say, legume sprouts, so beans, you know, it's easier to eat them when they're small before they get all tough. Mm-hmm. And that would be that, you know, that early summer. Uh, and then we have corn. Oh, my gosh. We have more corn than anything ever. <laughs> it's just there's plenty of, there is plenty of food resources uh, if you're not that picky which I don't think they are, I don't, I don't think they carry in, which is dead animal, you know, rotting animal. Right. But, uh, I think they'll pretty much take uh, any resource they can get if they need it. Uh, but yeah, so ours is, uh, I think that was a, a good chunk of their natural food source through that, that time of year was the, uh, probably agriculture, you know, corn. Cause we have, you know, people lose stuff to deer will decimate fields. Sometimes Right. there'll mm. be big hollow spots and uh how would you know if it was a sasquatch or a deer we you know you wouldn't right there's just a bunch of flattened corn and no corn no corn cobs or you know or emptied corn cobs right but uh yes we don't have like swaths of berry bushes like you see down like hawking does hawking has some valleys that are just full of them uh and i think that's maybe personally that's where i think maybe our part of the population goes uh, because it's just a lot, it's a lot better habitat, but it may, so, uh nomadacy being nomadic mm-hmm. can be a form of migration, uh, especially if it's food driven. Uh, so that'd be a food driven type of migration. And that would be a, that could be a non time-based migration. So it doesn't mean that they're, going there because it's you know it's may and this certain things in bloom or whatever or you know burying uh it could be because this area they're in is currently being exhausted of resources so they already kind of have an idea of where their next area is going to go and on our side of the state you see that uh Fountain has a couple apple orchards and one of the owners i will not name her but uh she has stories of Sasquatch coming on hers, and they're always there for the first week of September because that's the week before they pick apples. So they kind of know that there's going to be people coming in. This is her thoughts.
1: So the, fruit's they mature. Know gonna... the fruit is mature. Yep. They know that the picking season is, is right around the corner, and, mm-hmm. and they take advantage of it before they get into the fields. Yep. And
0: they, she says they never decimate it, but they, they take plenty of apples, and then they move on. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of my kind of general thoughts on that. We just kind of did a whole uh, episode on migration and probable migration patterns. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of my thing is that there's kind of a misconception that migration means you're walking 900 miles a year. Right. It doesn't have to be, you know, it can be short term migrations. Uh, home ranges too, can be huge
1: that kind of opens up the question, you know, is this, is this a learned behavior? Is this, do they know these other places exist because they have been on these paths uh, throughout the years with their family unit when they were a, a youngster? Is this something that is uh, hereditary that, you know, like uh, what is it, the, the monarch butterflies? They, yeah. they just know that they, when it's time, they, they had, you know, thousands of miles to, uh, I forget where it is that they all head to, but
0: it's it's in
1: Mexico. Yeah. You know, I mean, it makes you, it makes you wonder if it's, if it's a hereditary thing, then maybe they're not as, uh, uh, maybe they're not as cognizant and, uh, and having uh, cognitive thought like we think they do. Um, It's it's more of a natural instinct or is this a learned behavior and they do have cognizant thought.
0: Well, so, in my opinion, I mean, it matters, I think, where you want to put them on the, the the family tree. Right. If they are a higher primate or even on our part of the branch, you know, they don't have to be, a, like, a uh, you know, anywhere to be a home. Or they can be something earlier. Uh, it'd most likely be a learned behavior uh, from everything that I, that I understand about the subject.
1: That would be my um, guess as well.
0: If they are lower... Uh, more primitive than it could be hereditary, but uh, all the behaviors we see present that, you know, suspect the behaviors we see present, everything's suspected or you know what I mean? Implied.
1: It's, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, They're very high-end intelligence stuff. I mean, they're, in my opinion, they're pretty much as smart as us, just not technologically advanced. You don't have to be technologically advanced to be smart. Right. I mean, there are tribes in South America that have the same cognitive level capabilities you have. But they probably don't know how to work an iPad. Exactly. Because it's not a part of their life. It's just. uh, I think they're probably, just from, I mean, being able to hide this long, especially in like, we're not, you know, the Pacific Northwest, anybody could hide. If you know how to survive off the land in every season, nobody's going to find you. But in Ohio Michigan, Indiana, you know we have a lot of people and not a lot of good habitat in my opinion so you got to be good at hiding and that's a certain level of intelligence plus you know all the camouflage they probably you know they probably use and whatnot you know know but at that point
1: sorry well oh, you're fine uh- you say not a lot of good habitat, but yet, you know, like the state of Michigan, I think, uh, if I have the numbers right, 53% of the state is wooded.
0: Yeah. So, I guess I'm more talking about Ohio. I'm looking at my big Ohio map. Oh, okay. Uh, so, Ohio and Indiana, Illinois. We have, Ohio is the fifth uh, largest Sasquatch, or it's, the, it's the third, I think it's the third largest Sasquatch sighting state. Uh, I'd yeah, have to I look again. I think you're right. I think it's the third, and I think it's because we are right at the right mix of having enough habitat to support them, but such low-quality habitat that they have to interact with us more often, and there's so many people. But those are all three separate factors. Are they all playing a part? Is it one thing? You know, That's all speculation.
1: Or are there, are there reason, a tremendous amount of sightings because at a point they all start to move?
0: Yeah, that could be. Uh, like I said, it seems to be, and this is just from my research, a lot of our movement on our side of the state, so the north side, or the, the west side of the state, is that spring and fall. And there's hunting seasons in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of our sightings are hunters. So is it because there's more people in the woods, or is it because they have to move during those times for whatever reason? Right. Whether that's breeding or food or... Competition, you know, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of reasons an animal of their caliber would have to move. Uh, and you know, the two biggest ones are probably food and uh, reproduction. Exactly. Whether that's somewhere to give birth that's safe or it's uh, meat to breed. Uh, and these are, like I said, these are all just my opinions from what I understand of uh, of them. But I don't think their weather moving that I, being that large, being their core being that thick, weather does not affect them like it affects us. Like we we, we talked about, you know, they don't need a fire. You're talking about an organism that uh, has tons of sightings in Alaska, and they shake off that weather. Yeah, Canada as well. uh
1: mm. Mm-hmm. Lots in Canada.
0: Now but you know you just-
1: that's I guess. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to segue into a, a, another part of of this interview. You know, I mean, that's for a, a person to make a theory about what you just stated. That's that's kind of a bold statement because it almost almost alludes to you know you might know something a little bit more than what you're um, just guessing at, and and I guess I guess you do to some extent because of your your background is. Uh, uh, a wildlife biologist and, and the DNA, um, collection yeah. stuff that you did. So let's, let's get into that a little bit. And then I want you to, to bring in your, uh, um, talk about your friend who, uh, who specifically, uh
0: um, the, the caloritician. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. I got it all right in front of me. So like we, uh, like I told you, uh, I did, all kinds of DNA work for my old job. I don't do that job currently, so I'm not a biologist or a technician anymore. I hurt, I had an injury uh, last year and I had to leave it. Um, but when I did do in, uh, DNA, I did everything from individual DNA, uh, secondary collection of DNA. So that's like um, that can be everything from saliva to mucus. I did mostly amphibians with that kind of stuff. So mucus was a big deal, uh, hair, and then. Um, you know, we'd pull the DNA off of stuff. And we even did environmental DNA. You ever heard of I'm sure you have the eDNA. E- eDNA, yeah. Yes. Uh, it's not an accurate tool yet. But I bet you in the next 15 years, it'll be the greatest biological survey tool ever. Uh, it's still being it's still in its infancy, and it's being fine-tuned.
1: And what are, uh, what are we able to tell by using that?
0: Uh, right now, it's kind of, you kind of get a blinding view. Uh, it'll tell you, it'll hit every DNA marker in that region with eDNA. So we kind of use them as kind of a uh, broad stroke to uh, see if, for endangered species, uh, if their DNA is even present in the system we're looking at. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if it's not present, it's not, you know, it's obviously not going to be there. But even if it is present, it doesn't mean that individual's species is still present. Uh, Our biggest one, like uh, the other one is invasive species we look at, uh, Asian carp, for example. And uh, I can't talk too much about that. I'm still in some non-disclosure agreements with some research I did with those. But basically you can get hits that say Asian carp are here and they're not. And that's mostly because uh, waterfowl will eat uh, their eggs or their larvae, digest it, poop it out in that system and their DNA is still present. Okay. You can have very old DNA that still hits with eDNA. DNA.
1: So, so the digestive process of a animal will, mm-hmm. will not eliminate, it will
0: not completely destroy DNA. Okay. But it's enough for the DNA to pick up on it and ID the species. Interesting. Uh, it's a, it's a big problem with the Asian, with the Asian carp, uh, the silver's and big heads. Um, When you say Asian carp, that's kind of an off-topic thing. But when you say Asian carp, that's four species. The really one of the ones we cared about were the Asians or the silvers and the big heads. Okay. Um, But yeah, so with that type of DNA study, it's very you have to be very very careful. Uh, And we'll talk about that more because human contaminant is the biggest thing to get DNA thrown out so fast because you can have a blind like. Say if I had a drop of my sweat getting that sample, guess what? It's going to say 100% human. That's it. Because there's so much of that present, it's hard for it to read anything else.
1: Okay.
0: And normally the analyzer will just kick it out as a, a bad sample. Even, uh, so like we talked about with primates, uh, they have to be very, very careful. And they actually have to fine-tune those uh, the analyzers. to Because a lot of like chimpanzees and gorillas we share so much DNA with, it can be very difficult to, uh, when you're not doing individual DNA, and that's kind of a different thing like me and your DNA are different, but we have the ID markers for human. right. Does that make sense?: Yes So there's a difference between individual DNA and species DNA. We're talking about species DNA. Uh, there's, species DNA is so close that it can you know it can sometimes throw false flags saying, "Hey, you know this sample is contaminated by human." No, it's not, it's just a species that's close enough.
1: But um, yeah. So well, when we co- let yeah. me let me interject here with um, that last statement you made. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: let's go into the uh, Sasquatch genome project, which yeah, and know, I did
0: listen to those episodes since we talked last. Mm-hmm.
1: And and you know, based on no, nobody's saying you're a uh, the world's expert on DNA or anything like that. I am but, not. But when you when you listen to you know, what's been talked about as far as the discreditation of that study. And then you have a, a whole bunch of people on the opposite side of the spectrum saying that it was it was squashed and that it was accurate and they're just not willing to um, go out on a limb and say that their findings were correct. Uh, what What's your opinion?
0: So I want to say this first before I go on that. Uh, like you said, I'm not a, I'm not a DNA expert. I collected DNA for a living for mm. my job. Uh, I worked as the collection part of it. I didn't work in a lab. I sent the lab samples off. Uh, so I have a rough idea of how the lab system works, but, but I did not work.
1: Al- lim- but you also, being the collector of DNA, you also understand the importance of the the chain of custody, the the proper yes. way to the proper way to. Um, uh, package the DNA or um, collect it, so mm-hmm. that so that your contaminants don't right. don't occur.
0: Yes, I can. I am very good at that. Okay, uh, that's yeah, that is what I did. I am very good at that. Um, as far as you know, we, when we start talking about the lab stuff, it seemed, and I don't know this for a fact. From what I heard, uh, you know. And I haven't looked into it greatly, so my opinions can change. but uh, I don't know if there was just if it was just somebody's like whoever was in charge of it just didn't really care, if they were doing it for like maybe grad project work, it was just it seems so weird that like you said, like uh, they promised them they were going to do one way of testing, and they just didn't right uh and they you know, they tested against known species which was not, you know, not the agreed-upon testing strategy. Right. Um, the problem I can see, though, with that study, and this is like the other, and so that's one thing I can see that was not fair from the lab standpoint, you know, already. Uh, from the human standpoint, from the other side of it, the collectors, it is very hard to do a DNA study with a bunch of people collecting samples from all over, because standardization is a very very big part when we do these research studies for other and I you know I did it with fish but it's still you have to do it the same way every time that's why they'll hire a group like what I worked for and we'll go all over the country and our crew will collect that you know there's not 50 crews collecting that right it's three people that are doing it every time and you just i don't think that's possible right now with sasquatch but as far as a you know a complaints of DNA study, that could be a really big hindrance because you know maybe let's say Joe collected uh, hair follicles. So follicles are the part with the uh, the DNA, the root, and Joe breathed on it. His droplets can contaminate that sample if he got too close. So it's going to say human, no matter what. Uh, you're going to get a human flag. So was it because the sample's close enough to human, or was it because Joe breathed on it? Uh, you know, it, it's even more difficult when you maybe are looking at a species that is probably, you know, that I think most of the the community feels is related to us in some way, shape, or form. Um, and that's not everybody, but that's where I'm at, personally, and I feel that's, a you know, a good chunk of the community. Uh, so when you have that kind of structure that, you don't have that standardization, you're going to have a lot of, a lot of false flags. You have no way to, to prove that every sample was collected appropriately. Right. Because I believed in that study, they, they did get a lot themselves, but they got a lot from other people too. But that doesn't discredit those samples. I don't want to say that. You know, it's, they're still viable samples, but it's just hard to prove that. Does that make sense? Am I explaining that all right? Yeah, it does.
1: It, it's not okay. a, it's not an in, indictment of the samples themselves as much as the the process used to collect it.
0: Right. I was literally, one of my samples was data collector. So that's, so like, uh, I got a little list. I have some Sasquatch DNA collection kits we put together. Uh, we haven't had to use them yet. Uh, we've only been out a couple times with uh, my co-host but I can kind of go through these kits and how to appropriately collect a sample.
1: That's That's impressive. Yeah, I would like for you to go into that. The fact that you uh, are able to to put together a kit for a standardized practice for collection of DNA evidence.
0: Yep, and that's all it is. And you gotta... I would always say to somebody, and like I said, I'm not a nobody's a bigfoot Xer. I'm not a bigfoot Xer. I'm a bigfoot enthusiast that did DNA collection for a living. Right. Um. So this is similar. This is nothing different than what I would do for some kind of endangered vol. Uh, but it's a little more tedious because we may be testing for something that's human related. Um. So you're going to have two separate bags. Bag one, you're going to pack sterile. So that means you're going to put on gloves, and you're going to uh, – if you can have long-sleeve shirts, gloves – we'll get into that more. But you're going to wipe your hands down with alcohol wipes because you're still touching your gloves to put them on. So you're still contaminating your gloves before you even put them on. Uh, So you're going to – after you put the gloves on, you're going to use the alcohol wipes to sanitize your gloves when you pack these kits. The whole process is important. You don't want any human DNA in this if possible. It's hard to do, but, you know, as, as close as we can. Um, so you can buy sterilized evidence bags and vials. So these vials will come pre-packaged in like a little plastic film. So the vial is always sterile. Uh, same with these evidence bags. Sterile forceps, they're little plastic ones. Uh, they're, they, they're the same thing. They come pre-wrapped sterile. So you, pre, you every one of these is just a one-time use kind of deal. And a lot of alcohol wipes is the first little baggie. <laughs> uh, your second little baggie is gloves, dry wipes for your face and your sweat, a face mask to prevent droplets to spoil the sample. So when I say droplets, it means uh, vapor droplets from your mouth, your nose. When we breathe... We are shedding our DNA constantly. Okay. So if you find a hair sample and you shove your face up by it and you're breathing on it, that's not a, that's not a clean sample anymore. Um,
1: and what's, what you can what do you, try to wear. A hat. And what do you have included Sorry. in the kit that, that mitigates that process?
0: So a face mask, like an M95. Okay. Um, and then, you know, you try to wear a hat or something to prevent hair and dandruff from falling off your head and as little to expose skin as possible. Like I said, long sleeve shirts, uh, you know, the face mask helps. And basically, so you'll put on your gloves. So this is the process if you're ready for this part. Sure. Okay. So if you see a piece of evidence, let's say there's, you know, some long, curly, r- red-brown hair stuck to a tree about six foot up, and you kind of see it, don't get close to it yet. You know, you see on some shows and videos, you know, they get right up to it. I would personally suggest you don't get near it, you know, very near it, if you feel it may be viable evidence, If you know, if you really feel it may be. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to dry, you know, you're going to take a little rag, dry your face, any sweat you may be dripping and stuff like that. You're going to mask and glove up. So you're going to put on your mask, you're going to put on your gloves, uh, eliminate as much exposed skin as possible. And that is really because we may be testing for a, a cousin, basically, okay. or something close. Uh, we want You just want so little, you know, you want to make the risk of human contamination as little as possible. So after you put on your gloves and your mask, you're going to take some alcohol wipes, and you're going to sterilize everything that could be contaminated with your DNA even your gloves, you know, around the sleeves, stuff like that. And that's because you were touching the gloves to put them on. Right. A lot of people don't think about that. You know, in your head you put on the gloves, you're sterile. But how did you get those gloves out? You grabbed them or, you know, whatever. And then after you're sterile, you're going to unpack your forceps in your collection vial I'll try to send you those Amazon links. I get most, most everything off of Amazon or at the old lab I worked at. But you can get this stuff. So after you unpack your forceps, your collection uh, vial, you're going to use the forceps to collect the sample. You're going to put them straight in the sanitized vial. Uh, and then you're going to close it up with your gloves. And then you're going to double bag it in collection bags. Um, these bags should already be sterile on the inside. And this is just taking extra precautions. And this is pretty much just for samples you feel very viable because DNA is very expensive
1: to get done. Have you produced these uh, just solely for your own personal use or can yep. can piece people contact you and be provided these items uh, at a cost or would you just uh, would you just encourage people to follow? That's what same I would do at this point and, is and just create their own. you can
0: I mean this stuff is very cheap. It's not nothing on this list is expensive
1: right. And and then then you are faced with the issue, like you said, uh, DNA is is the process of um, having it analyzed is quite expensive. <clears throat> so, you know you 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 go through the the process. You are lucky enough to find some uh, some piece of evidence that you think may have been from one of these creatures. Uh, you go through the process, uh, like you just indicated, and collect it properly, and now you have this. The specimen of uh, hair or or fleshy tissue, or whatever it may be, and uh, or even a a tooth, or you know, part of a jawbone, or whatever it be.
0: Get that lucky? That's amazing. Uh, But you you can even do this with mucus or any.
1: What about what about urine?
0: Uh, It's a little harder in urine, but yes, you can. You can get DNA out of urine. Okay. Uh, It's uh, the ammonia kind of makes it a little more difficult, but it's still there. But yeah, uh, the next Feces. step. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lot in there.
1: But I guess the point I'm getting at is once you have this collected and you have this what you feel to be a, a hopefully a viable um, source of DNA evidence, <clears throat> getting it tested is going to be your next your next hoop that you have to jump through, and in your words, I think yesterday during our phone call, it could run anywhere from. Five hundred to thirteen thousand dollars to have yeah. one.
0: It can one it piece. can be, and for yeah, and you're talking for a uh, kind of an open test. It's going to be on that higher end. It's not anything cheap unless you have a buddy, you know that kind of deal. Yeah, and uh, the you know it's it's nothing. And then here's the other side of it. Until there is a confirmed. Individual's corpse. A lot of this DNA is is kind of it's not pointless, but it's it's hard to do anything with
1: because you have nothing to
0: because, compare it to. Right, it's either going to get kicked back as human, or it's going to get kicked back as unknown. And that's pretty much the best thing you can hope for is an unknown because there's nothing in the database that should match it. Right, if it is what we think it is, you know. should come back as unknown or like we talked about, you know, mom is something and dad is unknown or it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very hard place to be without, and that's what it always comes down to is without a body. Uh, It's just, I mean, that's kind of the, the rough of it until there's a corpse that is confirmed that we can, that, labs can have access to right you're gonna you know your highlight would be an undeter or an unidentified sample that would be your uh amazing thing right now but you can also be, freeze this that,
1: that would be the holy grail for for you as an enthusiast
0: yes right now that is be it, that is the most you could hope for is unidentified mm. and that's impressive i mean it depends on what kind of That's the other thing we kind of talked about. It matters what kind of test you run. If you run a local, you know, if you run a a species test and it's only Nevada species or whatever, and you get undetermined, doesn't mean it's not something from California, right? Uh, So that's not as impressive as unidentified, unless it's you know, if it's a bigger test, it's unidentified. That's that's impressive, you know. Until there's, I mean, really, it's until there's one on a slab. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be the one to do it. I'd never.
1: Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't personally, morally, I don't agree with the, the. Uh,
0: the the hunting one. Yeah, it's not for me. I'll tell you that. I'm I'm completely co- you know, uh, content. I know what I saw, and well, roughly I know what I saw. I don't know what they are really, but you know.
1: Well, Justin, let's, let's wrap this up. It's a great conversation with you. Again, you're the co-host of Cryptids of the Corn podcast. You can find that on Apple, Spotify, iTunes, everywhere you can get your podcasts. Uh, Justin's going to be joining me as a vendor at the Bigfoot and Brews event in September. Uh, if you're interested and you're in the Midwest, it's not that far of a drive for you, head over to bigfootandbrews.com, check out our site. All the event details are on there. Tickets are live now. You can purchase your tickets. If you'd like to be a vendor, you can purchase vendor tickets. And if you'd like to be a sponsor and help keep this going uh, year after year, please reach out to me, uncomfortable at gmail.com. We'll get a banner going. We'll have your, your name or your business name uh, where everyone can see. And, uh, we'll we'll give you special shout outs and some uncomfortable perks there the day of the event justin thanks so much for being with us i appreciate it a lot of interesting stuff and uh good luck with the podcast and i can't wait to meet up with you
0: i'm excited to meet up with you too and thank you so much for letting me come on and talk i like to talk well thank you again very much
1: i appreciate you sharing your stories with us yeah anything new happens uh Just give us a call and and let us know what's going on.
0: Sounds good. We'll see you in April 1st. Yes,
1: at uh, Ohio Bigfoot Conference. Yes, that one slipped my mind.
0: All right. Well, thank you again. I really greatly appreciate it.
1: Oh, you're welcome, my friend. Thank you.
0: Yep. Bye.
1: I want to hear your story. I want to hear your experience. So email me at contact.uncomfortable.com at gmail.com If you enjoy the show then leave us a rating and a review on iTunes Share the show with your friends Share the show on social media Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter All at Uncomfortable Podcast And until next week my friends Stay uncomfortable.